What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Muggsy Bogues was a household name in the 1980s and the 1990s. Without question, he is one of the greatest NBA athletes to play the game with little to no recognition in today's times. He has been overlooked, he has been underappreciated, and he has been dismissed, all because he stood at the height of five foot, three inches tall. One coach said, how can I play somebody this small in the NBA? Bogues is called oftentimes the underdog of the NBA for that specific reason of his height. However, with the heart of a lion, lightning speed, strength beyond his stature, insane handling abilities when he dribbles, competitive drive, court vision, basketball IQ, and general of his team, he became the smallest, fiercest basketball player in NBA history. And in fact, you want to know why I believe he's one of the greatest? Well, it's because he made it into a movie called Space Jam with Michael Jordan, Charles Barkley, and Patrick Ewing. There's no doubt when Bogues stood next to his opponents, his opponents towered above him. I mean, just imagine at five foot three, nearly every other player in the NBA stood at least a foot taller than him. And so as they towered above him, they dismissed his ability based upon his height. But he, shorter than any other player to ever play the game at that level, defied all the odds and overcome many obstacles that were stacked against him and used his little stature to his advantage. Able to to weave in and out to where his opponents couldn't even see him, he would steal the ball and zoom down the court and score or pass and get assists. At one time in his career, he often would lead the league in assists and steals. But also, I found this interesting about his life. When you think about basketball and you think about basketball fans, Muggsy Bogues, he was the height of the average fan of the NBA. So to that nature, all the people, children and teenagers, begin to love this little man who played the game because they were about his height. And he gave them great inspiration that you don't have to be six foot seven to play in the NBA. As we think about his life later in the message, if you can hang on for just a few moments, I want to show you a couple pictures just to give you a comparison of how short he was compared to other NBA stars. But that being said, I bring all of this up to say that just as Muggsy Bogues is overlooked and underappreciated and dismissed all because of his stature, I think it's obvious 
that when we think of the epistle of Jude, 25 little verses lodged right next to the highly esteemed book in the New Testament, Revelation, we often overlook, we often neglect, and we often dismiss this book and underappreciate it. And the title of the sermon series is Contend for the Faith, and the theme of this book is Contending for the Faith in the Age of Apostasy. But if I could give you a title for today's message, it would literally be found rooted in one simple word, the word servant. And the title is simply this, Be a Servant of God. If you walk away with anything from these first two verses of the book of Jude, it is simply that, be a servant of God, that we are called to be his servants. Now, all that being said, I, I want to give you just a tad bit of background information before we dive into this book. But of course, this theme is found in verse number three. It says, earnestly contend for the faith. Would you say contend for the faith with me? Contend for the faith. Say it again. Contend for the faith. That is, all 25 verses are, are, are being intertwined with this phrase right here in verse number three, including verses one and two. And so the way we can contend for the faith is by simply being a servant of God. This book of the Bible is highly debated among scholars and it is labeled as one of the disputed books in the New Testament. And what that simply means is there's a handful of books in the New Testament that some of the early church fathers and some of the reformers doubted its existence in the New Testament. And the reason why is because of the extra biblical references that Jude speaks about. In fact, he references Michael the Archangel, the Michael the Archangel, and um, Moses's body, and that is a reference to a book outside of the New Testament and outside of the Old Testament called the Assumption of Moses. And then Jude specifically quotes the Book of Enoch, which is found in the apocryphal writings. And if you've done any study on the Apocrypha, you know that the King James Bible originally had it between the New Testaments for historical references. And those are books that were wrote within the 400 years of the intertestamental period. That is the time between the, the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so some scholars, church historians themselves, debated this should not be included in the New Testament because of that. However, if that is the case then we would have to throw out some of Paul's letters because Paul referenced things that were extra biblical as well. So those things do not matter. And in fact, by the mid-300s, the church was in unanimous agreement that the book of Jude should be included in the canon. Now, as I was digging into this little small letter, there's very little clues about dating this book. And so I've seen dates from the early 50s all the way into the 100s AD. But to just kind of give you my opinion, among with some other conservative scholars, I think it is best to understand this book was written sometime between 60 and 80 AD. And if I could get a little bit more specific, I think it would probably be best to understand that it was written sometime between 67 and, and 70 AD. And the reason why is, is because 
you would think that that a large event like the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, that there would be some sense of reference in this letter if it took place after or around that time. And so it is best explained that sometime in the late 60s is when this small little letter was written. This book is called a general or Catholic epistle, not Roman Catholicism, but Catholic as in a general epistle to all the church at large. In fact, there's no clues other than verse one to them that are sanctified, to them that are preserved, and to them that are called. There, other than that, there are no clues in this little letter of who exactly and specifically Jude was writing to. And if you've read this book of the Bible, hopefully you have read it now or, or you will go read it this week, you'll begin to realize that, that this book is very similar to the second chapter of Second Peter. And so the idea in, in scholarship is this, that, that Jude either borrowed from 2 Peter or Peter borrowed from Jude. And then there's this idea that, that they both borrowed from, from the same source. Now, now, there's some clues here, I believe, in the book of Jude, and we're going to talk about it later on. But there's a, there's a verse right here in verse number 17. If you would look there, it says, But beloved, remember the words that were spoken before of the apostles. And notice in verse number one, Jude does not call himself an apostle. And so we think, I think, that Jude at some point read and received 2 Peter. And as he's reading and has read 2 Peter, he has in his mind 2 Peter. And as he's writing these things down from memory, kind of referencing 2 Peter, but also referencing back the Old Testament. And by the way, there's so much Old Testament in this book. And so it is highly likely that Jude is writing to believers who at one time were Jewish and had some sense of understanding of the book of Enoch and the, the assumption of Moses and the apocryphal writings. Now, that being said, I want to share with you a key thought for today's message. Not just be a servant of God, but if, but if you could walk away with anything, I want you to leave with this thought. You cannot know God unless you are a servant of God of God. You cannot know God unless you are a servant of God. Here, Jude begins by saying he is a servant. And I think it's interesting that, that, that many of the New Testament writers begin in a similar fashion, saying that they are a servant of God. They are a bondservant, or if you will, they are a slave. I know we don't like to use that terminology in our culture, but that's what the word means. That is somebody who, who pledged their life to their master, and he is saying that he is pledging his life to Jesus. Today, if you've never pledged your life to Jesus Christ, what a great day it would be to lift up your voice to God and say, God, I give you my life. God, I believe that you are Messiah. I believe that you are Lord, and I bow to your authority. The question I'm going to ask today is, what is Jude telling us about being a servant of God? Two verses, but two verses that get us into the mind of this original author. Of course, we know Jude was writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but God would oftentimes raise these men up and, and inspire them to write down these words. And Jude is writing a simple letter to a congregation, if not a congregation's plural, surfacing the Palestinian ancient area of Jerusalem. The first of five thoughts I'm going to share with you today is found in the first part of verse number one. 
And in fact, it's the word servant. Would you say that word with me? Servant. Say it again. Servant. Every servant of God has been identified by God. Every servant of God has been identified by God. And Jude begins by saying he is a servant of Jesus Christ. Begins with this idea that Jude, and we're going to get to this name Jude and who exactly this Jude was, but he begins by saying, first of all, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. In other words, he is saying that, that I once was a servant of sin and I was a slave to my flesh and my sinful nature. But there was a day in my life, Jude says, that I believe that Jesus was not just a man like any other man, but he was the Christ right here. Remember, the word Jesus is his name. The word Christ is a title. And we know that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed Christ. And so Jude is saying that now my life revolves around my master, Jesus, because he is Messiah and he is Lord and he is Savior. And today, my friend, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I urge you, I plead with you to be identified as one of his servants. Because listen, if you're not identified in Christ, if your identity is not found in Jesus, then your identity is never gonna be the, reach its full maturation or completion in this life. Sure, you might think your identity is found in your job or your identity is found in your career path or, or your marriage or your family or, or your hobbies. But listen, your identity as a believer is, is found in Christ. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, we, we urge you to come to faith to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. But as we move forward in our letter here, he says Jude, the servant of Christ, Jesus Christ, and then he says, brother of James. And so not only is Jude identified as the servant of Jesus Christ, but he's also identified as the brother of James. So who is this James? Well, we believe this James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ, a leader in the church of Jerusalem and the writer of the epistle of James. And so if Jude says he is the brother of James, then that would make him the half-brother of Jesus Christ. But before we get into that, I wanna share with you, there's at least eight or nine Judes mentioned in the Bible, Old and New Testament. And the genealogies, we find two individuals who are ancestors of Jesus who are named Judas. Now, just so you understand, the term Judas and the term Jude are synonyms. They are the same name. And it comes from a Hebrew name, Judah. And so Judah, back in the Old Testament, was the fourth son of Jacob and the hid tribe of Judah. Then you have two Judases or two Judas mentioned in the lineage of the Messiah in Luke chapter 3, verse 26 and verse 30. And then in the list of the apostles, the 11th name, we see the, 11 name, the 11th name of two lists of the apostles. You have one who is called Labius or Thaddeus, who is of James and not Judas Iscariot. So notice in the Gospels, when it speaks about Judas the Apostle, it speaks about how he is not Judas Iscariot. They did not want them to get mixed up. 
Then you have Judas, the brother of James, which it, it, we best understand this is who is referring to right here. And this Jude, by the way, was a man who is skeptical of his own half-brother, Messiahship. In fact, in the Gospel of John, we read that he, in chapter 7, we read in verses 3 through 5, we read about how he is there amongst his other half-brothers, and, and they are skeptical that he is the Messiah, and telling him, well, if you really are, why don't you go out and do all these miracles? And we read that in Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, that guess who's in the upper room with all the others? We have James and Jude there, the half-brothers of Jesus Christ. And there they are affirming that there was a time in their life after the resurrection that they affirmed that this Jesus, their half-brother, was the Messiah. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we see that the brothers of Christ, his half-brothers, are out going and evangelizing. In fact, we believe that Jude, along with his family, were missionaries in the ancient world. And so here he does not label himself as an apostle because he was not one of the twelve. He labels himself as a servant of Christ and the brother of James. Not to be identified as the half-brother of Jesus Christ, but to be identified with the brother of James. Perhaps because James had a key role in the church of Jerusalem, and he was trying to use that to gain an idea of advantage or um, uh, favor for his message. But then you have the one Judas Iscariot, who is the traitor of our, our Lord and Master. You have Judas, surnamed Barsabbas. He was a Christian teacher sent from Jerusalem to Antioch with Paul and um, on his missionary journey in Acts 15. Then you have Judas, a Jew living in Damascus with whom Paul lodged at his conversion in Acts chapter 9. And then you have a Judas surnamed the Galilean in Acts chapter 5. So there's about eight or nine Jews mentioned in the Bible. But this one is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And Jude is not just identified as a servant of Christ and a brother of James, but I believe he's also identified as a skeptic turned evangelist. And my friends, today you might be a skeptic of the truth of God's word. You might be skeptical of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, 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 and the news of salvation. But wherever you land today, I urge you that, that God can take a skeptic like Jude and turn him into a missionary and evangelist. And God can use you to be a missionary right here in Roanoke today, just like him. You cannot know God unless you're a servant of God. And what is you telling us about being a servant of God? Every servant of God has been identified by God. Where is your identity? Is it in Christ? If it's not in Christ, then it needs to be in Christ. But secondly today, I want to draw your attention to a second word found in verse number one. It's the word sanctified. Would you say that with me? Sanctified. Secondly today, of what Jude is telling us, is every servant of God has been sanctified by God. Every servant of God has been sanctified by God. These next words are the only clues about who is receiving this letter. And he says, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. And we'll get to the others in a, in a few moments. But it says, to them that are sanctified by God the Father. Here in our text, the Bible speaks about sanctification. This word gives the idea of to be set apart, to be made holy, to be 
purified and to be full of love from God. And as we think about this word sanctification, we know that, that there is a day in our lives when we were sanctified positionally with Christ. And today I, I want to share this thought with you. Sanctified by God through purification. That is a time when, when, when we heard the gospel and, and we believed that Jesus was Messiah, that, that we put our faith in him, what he did on the cross. Well, the cross isn't back there anymore, is it? Well, I uh, can't really do that. But anyway, it's just behind the screen if you have uh, x-ray vision. <laughs> but we know that, that there was a day when we believed that Jesus died and he rose again. And, and in that moment, he purified us from our transgressions and sins. And we were sanctified positionally with God. This word also gives the idea that, that once we are purified in this sanctification, we are also consecrated. And so sanctified by God, not just through purification, but also through consecration. That there we were purified like we go to, we go to Walmart or Kroger, wherever you shop and you go and you get that purified drinking water. God purified your sins through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But then once we are saved, once we are born again, once we're born from above, once we accept Christ as Savior, he takes us and he sets us aside to be used of him. And that gives the idea of consecration. This word goes back in the Old Testament. If, if you could just imagine, I am an Old Testament priest and there I have all the special garments on and I go in and I wash all my hands. I, I go in and, and I begin to partake in these sacrifices with the animals and I tie the animal on the altar and we, we go through that process and, and that animal has been consecrated for that specific use. And so we know that Romans chapter 12 says we are called to be a living sacrifice. In other words, we are to be daily consecrated to our master and Lord. And that's what this word gives the idea of. But then it also gives this idea of compassion. Sanctified by God through compassion. God purifies us. God consecrates us because God loves us. My friends, the love of God is going to be displayed throughout this letter in such a unique way. Because here, Jude, right out the gate, is pointing his readers to the Christ, the Messiah, and saying, hey, you've been sanctified, you've been purified, you've been consecrated because you've been loved by this God we serve. And today, my church, my church, I think I want to encourage you, just to let you know, you are loved by God. And God so loved you, God so loved me by taking our place on Calvary's cross. And if you know Jesus, if you're his servant, you have not just been identified in him, but you have also been sanctified by him. But let's move forward. What else is Jude teaching us about being a servant of God? Remember, you cannot know God unless you, you are a servant of God. Now look at the next key word here. It's the word preserved. Would you say that with me? Preserved. Say it again. Preserved. Today we have freezers that you might go hunting, you might kill a deer, you might kill some wild game, and you take that animal, you get it out the woods, you skin that deer or whatever the animal is, and then you cut that, that animal up, and then you put it in bags and you place that meat in that freezer and it is preserved for a good long time. And that deer burger sure does taste good, at least in my opinion. 
In fact, you probably had deer before and spaghetti and you just didn't realize it because somebody didn't tell you it was there. Uh, but just as we would preserve food in a freezer, my friends, Judah's writing to these believers who received Peter's prediction that these scoffers would come, these false teachers would come. And Jude says in verse 17, hey, now you're living in the days. These false teachers are here right now. And he says that there have been some that have apostatized and went away from the faith. They weren't really of us, but those who are of the faith, God is able to preserve. No matter how hostile the culture gets to the word of God, no matter how how much the flesh tries to pull us away from being holy to Jesus, the Bible says here that we are preserved in Jesus Christ. And I think thirdly today, every servant of God has been fortified by God. Every servant of God has been fortified by God. This gives the idea that, that... the, the ancient city of Jerusalem was up on a hill and they built this wall around the city. In the ancient world, the way to help protect yourself from the enemy's attacks is by building a wall around your community. It fortified your community from the enemy. And here we know that our fortification is not in these walls right here in this chapel, but our fortification is found in Jesus Christ. Fortified by God means guarded with protection. God is able to set a hedge of protection around his people, around his church, around his saints, around his body of believers and protect them through every storm, protect them through every wave of heresy, to protect them through every season of apostasy. My friend, God can protect you through the storms that you experience. But then this also means, fortified by God means completed with prevention. Listen, not just God is able to guard us with protection, but he's able to complete us with with prevention. That is, he, remember what Paul said in Philippians, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day. My friends, God finishes what he starts and he's able to protect us and prevent anything from happening outside of God's will for our life. So we don't have to worry. We don't have to fret what might come our way because God has, is going to prevent these things from happening. But then as we think about this, it also gives the idea of fortified by God means secured with preservation. It's interesting, the first verse is connected to the last verses. The last two verses are the doxology of Jude. That is a, a, a word of praise to God for all that he's done. And here he says, now unto him in verse 24, that is able to keep you from falling. My friends, this is the idea of pr- preservation. God is able to keep his church, God is able to keep his saints from spoiling in this world. And we can praise him for that. Every servant of God has been fortified by God, sanctified by God, and identified by God. And listen, you cannot know God unless you are a servant of God. What else is Jude telling us about being a servant of God? Well, fourthly, I want to draw your attention to the final word in verse number one. It's the word called. Would you say that with me? Called. 
as I read this word, as I read in this passage, I think about the fourth way or the fourth thought of what Jude is teaching us. Every servant of God has been certified by God. We've been certified by God. We've been called. We've been invited. We've been appointed by God. As we read this word called, if you've done any reading in the New Testament, you'll remember that it's a word that is used multiple times by many different writers in the New Testament. It's a word that's also used for the general call of God for all people to come to faith. Have you ever been fishing before? Well, when I was a teenager, when we would go to Dallas State Park for vacation, one day was devoted to me and my dad going to the Jackson River at Hidden Valley, and we would fly fish. I would have my bright yellow swimming trunks on and my swimmer shoes on and my dark blue shirt, T-shirt on, and I'd have a hat on. And I'd have that fly rod out, and we would, I, would, I would get pretty, pretty confident in my abilities, and I'd try to make that long cast. If you know about the fly rod, you've you got to keep it going, and it gets the, the line gets longer and longer, and, 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 and I'd, I'd try to cast it out as far as I could, and every now and then I'd catch a tree right behind me. <laughs> or I'd get it in there and get it in a nice hole, and it would fall down and get caught on a rock. But whenever you go fishing, in a sense, when you cast that line into the river or to the pond or to the lake, in a sense, you're summoning all the fish to come to you. And that's what we call the general call of God for all people to come to faith. He says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then there's this idea of the effectual call. Where just as I'm fishing, I'm summoning all these fish, come to daddy today and be fed. <laughs> God, in a sense, respectfully is saying that once that hook goes in and it hooks into a fish and he begins to pull it, that's the effectual calling. When you're out fishing and you hook that thing, you're like, I got you now. And you reel that thing in. God, in a sense, the effectual call is when the general call goes out, but then the seed is planted into the life of, of, of an individual who becomes a believer. Then God's hook of salvation hooks into their being and brings them to completion to be saved. And so when we think about this, we are certified and called by God to salvation. And that's the idea here, this word called. It's used in those two ways throughout the New Testament. But then as we come to faith in Christ, we have been certified by God to the Great Commission. That is now we've experienced this good news in Christ. Uh, uh, we have our sins remitted. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us from all our sins and, and all unrighteous. And we praise God for that. But then we're to take that message and go share it to others. And so how are you doing in that? Are you telling people about Jesus? Are you using the gifts and the talents and the callings that God has placed in your life to point people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Hey, listen, you don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to pack your bags up and move to, to some other state and, and go to Bible college. You don't have to, 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 to become an ordained licensed minister like myself or a pastor. You can be actively involved in the Great Commission wherever you are in society. And in fact, I believe right now that, that we are called to bloom where we're planted. Some of you might have been born somewhere else. You might have been born up north or out west or down south, or like way down south, like I'm talking like Louisiana down south, um, or maybe in the Midwest, or maybe right here in Roanoke. And maybe you moved to Roanoke. Well, listen, now we're all in the Roanoke Valley. Some 
are in Franklin County. Some are in Roanoke County. Some are in Roanoke City. Some are in Benton. Some are in Salem. Some are in Botetourt County. Some are in Craig. We're all over this field in Roanoke, but we have been planted right here in this area so that we can be involved in the Great Commission just as Jude was planted in the ancient world. He was planted in a family who his mother was Mary and his father was Joseph and his half-brother was Jesus Christ. And for a while, he doubted that this was Messiah as he claimed. He doubted that he was the one predicted by Isaiah and Jeremiah. But then he came to faith and then he went around all over the ancient world telling people with his family the good news of Jesus Christ and that's what we're called to do. You can use your vacations to share Jesus. You can be sitting in your lawn chair on Myrtle Beach, drinking your lemonade in the shade and pointing people to Jesus Christ. Certified by God to salvation to the Great Commission. I didn't check this out. Certified by God to glorification. We know that general call goes out to all people, but then that effectual call hooks us and we're reeled in by the, the means of God's good grace and salvation. And then he sends us out to go to be an evangelist and a missionary right here in our area. But then we know that the day of glorification is coming where we will be glorified in the sight of God and we will see him as he is. And listen, we've been certified We've been appointed, we've been called, we've been invited to be involved in all these things and that is a blessing. Jude, of course, writes his letter like any other letter in the ancient world. He begins his name, gives a little introduction, tell who he's writing to, but then he gives his prayer of blessing. And in verse number two, it's dedicated to this prayer of blessing. But I wanna draw your attention to verse the last word in verse number two, the word multiplied. Would you say that with me? Multiplied, say it again, multiplied. And one more time, please, multiplied. The fifth and final thought today is this. Every servant of God is called to be multiplied by God. Every servant of God is called to be multiplied by God. Now, it's been a long time since I was in math class. In fact, at the time I went to Bible college, it was a non-accredited Bible college. So that means I didn't have to take math and science. And I'm thankful for that. But the year after I graduated, they became accredited. And all those people that came in, they had to take math and science and English. So God bless them. But so it's been a while since I've been involved in math. But I know two plus two equals four. And four plus four equals eight. And eight plus eight equals 16. But two times two equals four. But four times four is not eight, but it's 16. And it's interesting, when you begin to think about multiplication, it is way greater than addition. And that's what God has called us to be involved in. God can multiply his church through the believers that consist in the church. And so think about this. If we were to get serious about our walk with Jesus, and we were to seek to try to lead one person to Christ every single year, and then take that year after they come to faith, and we disciple them like Jesus discipled his disciples, and we try to train them and, and teach them about the faith that we have learned and get them engaged in the local church, and then teach them to go, and the next year they go and lead, try to find somebody to lead to Christ. And if we did that every single year for the rest of our lives, I believe our little church could reach the world through multiplication. And in this verse number two, I do find it interesting that throughout Paul's letters and the other letters in the New Testament, you often find grace, mercy, and peace mentioned. But in Jude's letter, he says mercy, peace, 
and love. So we can pray for God's mercy to be multiplied. Mercy is God showing compassionate sympathy and pity upon one another and giving them what they do not deserve. And that's what God has given us through salvation. He has. And why would we hold that back and not share it with the world? But then he says, peace. Let's pray for God's mercy to be multiplied through us. But then also, let's pray for God's peace to be multiplied through us. Think about this. This word peace, it gives the idea of quietness, stillness, and rest. And listen, there's, surely there's been times, all of us, that we, we go to bed at night, but we never really get rest. Because we turn this way and we turn that way and we get up and we read and we do whatever we can to fall asleep. But that night, for some reason, we just could not have rest. Well, you know, there's a lot of people walking around in this world today and they're turning to this and they're turning to that. They're seeking to find rest and stillness and quietness in all the wrong places except Jesus. And today, if you want rest, Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, all that comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. Jesus' arms are open to the whole wide world, so come to him if you want peace. Come to him if you want mercy, but then check it out now. It says love. Pray for God's mercy to be multiplied in us. Pray for God's peace to be multiplied in us and through us, but then pray for God's love to be multiplied through us. This word love is an amazing word in the New Testament. It's the agape word for love. And this word is very different than some of the other Greek words for love. This word is like the highest level of love. But I find it interesting that, that, that Jude uses this word here in the midst of him using the word servant in verse one. I found it interesting that this high word for love in the Greek language gives the idea that it's able to connect anybody from any class of society. So whether you're a landowner or you're a renter, or whether you're a wealthy man or you're a, 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 a poor man, or whether you're in the high class or the middle class or the low class, this word agape love is the ability that God has to make all people level in the eyes of God. And he can take masters and make them servants. And he can take servants and make them servants again. And today, when we think of the gospel, we know that the gospel is level. And in other words, God calls men, God calls women, God calls Jews, God calls Gentiles, God calls those that are free, and God calls those that are slaves to come and experience his love. You cannot know God unless you're a servant of God. Let me ask you something. Are you allowing your walk with Christ to be multiplied? Have you received that calling on your life? Are you allowing God to preserve you? Are you allowing God to sanctify you and make you more like Jesus? And are you walking as a servant? Listen, we are pretty free in America, but let me just share this with you. If you die without Christ as an American citizen, this is as free as you'll ever be in eternity. And in fact, you'll never experience freedom until you bow your knee and submit to the master 
Jesus. This word servant, it gives the connotation that, that you let go of your will and your desires to fulfill the will and desires of your master. And my friend, that's what we're called to do. And that's what you did. So earlier in the message, I talked to you about Muggsy Bogues. And I want to show you two pictures. The first one is with Michael Jordan. So if you could just see that right there. Let me get out of the way here. Michael Jordan stood six foot six as an NBA athlete. And Muggsy Bogues, of course, is the shortest player to ever live. And he was five, uh, to play the game, that is, five foot three. That is not my photo, obviously. It was taken in 1995, and I was a tiny tot in that, that year. <laughs> but the next slide is Muggsy Bogues standing next to his teammate when he was with the Washington Bullets, which now are the Washington Wizards. And the guy there, I'm not really sure how to pronounce his name, but he stood at seven foot six inches tall. Get this, he was two feet three inches taller than Muggsy Bogues. And as we think about how short he, he, he was, these pictures gives you the idea of how hard it would be for him to play the game. In fact, when he would drive into the lane, they say that, that he would go into the midst of trees because he was so short. But somehow, some way, he would weave in and out. And he had determination. He had perspiration, that hard work ethic. And I do believe he had a little divine intervention. Because listen to this, when he was in high school, his, his, his last year, his team, or the last couple years of high school, they went 60 and 0. And they were the number one team in the nation in high school. And he goes on to play for college and goes to the NBA. But Muggsy Bogues reminds us how size doesn't always matter. How content, our character, matters more than size. As I shared with you earlier, some in the past have thought, and perhaps some in the present, think that Jude is pointless to us today. And in fact, at one time, the book of Jude was the most neglected book in the New Testament. And just think about it. When is the last time you even heard a sermon from the book of Jude? I mean, just one sermon. Much less an entire sermon series devoted to every single verse. Chances are you never have. <laughs> when is the last time you, you, you went to a Bible study that went through the book of Jude? You know, popular Bible studies are like the Gospel of John or the book of Ruth or some of these more famous books of the Bible. The chances are you, you've never been and sat in a Bible study like on Wednesdays or a Tuesday morning or a Monday, whatever. You've never sat in a Bible study. The odds are. Will you be like many people in, throughout church history who will overlook this book? Will you be like those who have neglected to read and study this book? Will you be like those who have dismissed this book simply because of how short it is? But remember, size doesn't matter. Content and character matters more. So I submit to you today to read it, to study it, to memorize it, to share it, and to believe it. Jude's small little letter is jam-packed, action-packed, power-packed of the truth of God's word. So let's no longer skip this book when we're reading through the Bible. God is calling us 
to be his servants. Will you be his servant? What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm going to walk by, I'm going to keep my, I'm going to live by faith. I'm going to walk by, I'm going to keep my, I'm going to live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.